let's go ahead and start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, as we spend each day falling more deeply in love with you and our Catholic brothers and sisters, let us also feel the seal of the Holy Spirit as we explore our purpose in expressing our Catholic mission. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So I don't know how many people were here last week, but last week we reviewed the Sacrament of Reconciliation and Penance, and the personal development com concepts were for improving communication and managing behavior. We discussed how the re reconciliation, as Father mentioned actually this morning, as well as penance are necessary to stay aligned with our Lord. We also learned that communication requires first identifying our temporal needs before we can accurately express them, and then seeking answers to the needs of others in order to better manage our own behavior. I don't know if anybody's ever read a book called Everything I Ever Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's pretty much the way it should be with Faith Foundation, too. So um, if you want to look at the itinerary page, I'm going to go ahead and start with the definition of confirmation, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with the special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the, by word and deed. Christ himself declared that he was marked with the Father's Spirit. Christians are also marked with that seal. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has commissioned us. He has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The seal of the Holy Spirit marks our total belonging to Christ, if you vaguely recall from baptism. You are a child of God, and, and you are claimed for Christ. So the sacrament of, of confirmation and the personal development concept this week of boundary setting might not be as easy to correlate, but if you start to recognize that your relationship with Christ is the primary one, that's the one that you want to focus in on, you can also see how easily it is to get separated from when we engage in unhealthy kinds of relationships. So these relationships can actually end up making you feel very empty and lonely. And the reason for that is that you're just feeding the ego. You're not trying to engage you know, within and create that alignment within you. And that's what autonomy is. So that's why nothing, no person, no place, no thing or anything will feel sufficient because we're all born with that insatiable desire to find that unconditional love from our Lord. Okay, so when people go out and they can't make, you know, when I end up in, you know, living in Thailand, I'll be happy, or, or those kinds of things, you're, you're, you're looking the wrong direction. You need to be looking inside first. So on that first page in setting boundaries, which I hope everybody got, um, they have a definition of boundaries I have a different one, and I'm going to read mine to you. So personal boundaries are the limits and rules we set for ourselves within relationships. Boundaries should be based on our faith foundation and unique expression of our Catholic faith. We should seek only to engage with others if they bring us closer to our Lord and help us live out our mission of the church through that quest to decide and discover what God's perfect will is for us. So that's kind of my definition, but it's important because what a lot of people don't realize when you hear the word boundary setting, you know, sometimes have a negative attachment to it, sometimes a positive or, 
whatever. But the thing I want you to begin to focus on and frame your life around is setting boundaries across all those four domains that we talked about. The spiritual domain, the emotional, the mind, and also the physical. So when it comes to spiritual, in our Catholic faith, we have to interact with some societal influence that is not in alignment with what our Catholic faith is. And it's not always, it's not persistent, and you don't have to go, you know, disengage and go hide and isolate. But it's just important to start paying attention to it because we're moving into in confirmation, we're going to be identifying our talents and gifts and our charisms, and then we're expected to go out and share them. So that's one piece. The other one is when people try to impose a boundary on you emotionally. Okay, so sometimes people will do that and and usually it's for their own personal gain. They're trying to find a way to, to wheedle in. Uh, I worked with some people engaged in seriously bad behavior, and I often thought they're like those velociraptors in Jurassic Park. You know, they're just going along trying to find that weakness in the fence so they can break through. So you want to be paying attention to that. And then a couple of weeks ago, we also talked about the mind control, the, the, the messaging that keeps coming across that can ultimately try to manipulate you into adjusting your values. And we talked at the beginning, we don't adjust our values to the culture around us. We want the culture around us to adjust to us and be anchored in on Christ. So any of the self-sabotage that people do around um, poor boundary setting or self-deprecation is the result of that. So we have to have a, a, a solid sense of our identity as, remember about baptism, children of God. That's, that's our primary identity. And then you build and support people around that. So what happens uh, in a general sense, you can start to really easily look to people, places, and things outside of you when in fact you, you don't understand your self-worth and it can't be contingent on the people around you. You can deepen it with people around you, but it it can't be contingent because we want to be connecting to Christ within through some holy practices and and alliances with other people. Now, it doesn't mean we just all sit around only hanging out with Catholics. I mean, of course, that would be easy, but, um, but it's not what the second half of the mission is. We're supposed to go out and do something, right? That, when that happens, it, it's named as an external locus of control. Has anybody heard that phrase before? It's when you're determining who you are based on the feedback you get outside of you rather than focusing in on that. And one of the things that I think is really critical, is, especially with teens, I tell them that's a very precarious thing to do. It's kind of like going to a shopping mall and parking your car and then deciding you're going to know where the car's parked based on the one next to it. Well, that's going to move, you know, I mean, so then you don't know what's happening. But inside, that never changes, never changes. So those are the, the, that's the direction we want to go. But if you've experienced, or your children or anybody, a traditional kind of faith formation and some sense of healthy personal development, your internal sense of self ought to be pretty rooted by the time you're 12 years old. And so one of the biggest dangers I've seen is that population of kids in middle school. So they're going, they're 12 years old, they go into middle school, sometimes they're, I know where we live, there was a very, very small elementary school, 
opens up into a big one, that could be intimidating. Um, but what happens is, if you do that in middle school, and you're looking at maybe the first thing you, you see, or the first person you meet or something, could be a person who is absolutely incongruent with your value system. Everything they live by is completely different. And if you're not really rooted in your faith, that's going to get changed because you're allowing somebody else to decide who you are and, and how to identify. And that, I even hate using that word now. Uh, but if something shakes the faith really before it was solid and well-rooted and they can't withstand any stress to it, then you're going to have a problem where self-doubt comes in, in consciously or unconsciously, and it can stimulate feelings of anxiety that, reach, that leave you reaching for anything. You know, have you ever seen somebody on the verge of an anxiety attack, or maybe somebody has been, and, and they're not hearing anything you say, and they're just grasping for anything? And that part of the brain um, is the same, the amygdala part of the brain is the same what happens when people use substances. It, it starts to neutralize logic. You, you lost sense of that. So it's something primarily, not always, but happens in junior high school, but then it can extend out. So if, like as parents, you're the faith formers, right? Uh, if there's not been a complete success and that person that you're forming has that strong internal sense of self, they're going to kind of open themselves up to anybody's interpretation of who they are. And they're grasping, because when you're, it's like drowning sometimes when you're in an anxiety attack, and you're just grasping for anything. And so if some person who doesn't have your best intentions uh, comes on the scene, you could easily adjust to that. And most of the time, as I mentioned before, people who are struggling with those kinds of feelings and any kind of behavioral um, difficulties, they're not obvious. And, and usually, even if as a parent, they'll go, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, they come home one day and a, a child's threatening suicide or, or something and they had no idea that there was any disturbance going on. Why? Because you were never tested. So you can say, oh yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I'm just going to hang around Catholics. Okay, well then you're probably not going to run into too much interference. But when it's something else, we have to be strong enough to go out and, and not just, like I said, live the gospel, but, but speak it if you're trying to advance the faith. So you better be really solid at what you're doing. Now, I'm certainly not a theologian, so Father Len, though, is very, very helpful in that regard if somebody's looking to get some information on how to defend the faith. But this unsuccessful transition, transition that can take place can persist all the way into adulthood. And when I ask people sometimes, when's the last time you felt joy? I mean, really pure, unadulterated joy. They'll say, I can't remember. Or... I think I was in grade school. I was in my teacher's class and it was what, you know. And so that's something that why that particular transitional period seems important to me because two reasons. One, if they're actually in the middle school age, you want to be there as a support. But also, if some of those feelings that you've had about yourself extended into adulthood, you want to start to assess in that way so you can get a little bit more information. Because remember, that's all we're doing. We're not looking to judge. We're not looking to label. We're not looking to do any of that. Just understand. You have to understand, so you're gathering information, and all that information is going to be useful to you later. So without that, though, the person gets, my professional term, stuck. They're stuck in there because they will be until some 
like aggressive form of counseling or somebody really reaches out to be there for you, you could have suffered something else that, that makes that difficult. But in middle school is the first time kids are making decisions by themselves. I mean, the parents are not right there. They'll have seven teachers instead of one. Um, where our kids went to school, the, the elementary schools were so small that they actually drew lines, like in prison. They drew lines, they follow the green line, you know, to get to your, to your teachers because it was so overwhelming. But so you really want to recognize that personal development and faith formation deficiencies are most likely to show up during a transitional period. Like you, you think you got it wired, right? And then something happens and you're faced with that decision on how you're going to go about working through it. So just for information, um, the research shows that kids in that range are very susceptible to what they call negative emotions. And that's because they're undergoing a very, very overwhelming biochemical shift as well as so much newness. And it's like overwhelming. So they're going to grab on to whatever anybody else brings them. So if you're not there or there's not somebody there to introduce something that's a healthy alternative, they'll just grab on to whatever's there. I mean, I, it's actually my favorite group to work with. I know one of, my, one of my colleagues said he'd rather stick needles in his eyes. Um, but I don't mind doing it because they are in that place of ambiguity. And if I can come in with some helpful, healthy suggestions, they're more likely to then proceed forward and do what they need to do. But right now, those kids at that age are just trying to find their place in the world. They're not sure where they're at. They've been told what to do up until that time, and then suddenly they're faced with decisions that they have to make, and they don't always know how to assess the people they're interacting with to determine what kind of boundaries need to be set. So right now, I want to clarify something that middle school kids in particular are confused, not about gender, not about, <laughs> they're just confused. So if you come, somebody comes in and introduces this concept, oh, I got your, I, I got you, this is how we solve this. And it's so contrary, and in fact, the Holy Father, as recent as yesterday, said something about it, because it's now, you're trying to let people play God around you. And, and so there needs to be a lot of support with that age range, because if they're not, you know, nothing feels certain, pretty much. You know, in fact, I've, I've had to tell some people that, that think that everybody else has it going on but them. You know, they're just, nothing's going right for me or whatever. And I have to tell them, I've had homecoming queens in my office. You, you know, you're not, just because somebody looks like everything's going right, you're all in the same boat. You're all going to have to go through that period and there's no way to get around it. Um, so with that strong faith, you can do something about it. And I'm going to add another piece. So I've been doing this since 1979, since I started studying all this stuff. And let me just tell you, there is no evidence at all to suggest that there's an uptick now in gender confusion. There's an uptick now in identity confusion. There is no evidence to show that. I mean, I've beaten down a bunch of different sources. There's nothing. But what we do have evidence of is when people have been essentially manipulated into thinking that, the suicide rate's gone up. That's the one thing we do have evidence on. In fact, in the UK, they decided, hmm, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. 
Maybe we should stop doing that. And so hopefully we'll, we'll try to stop things that have been happening here just to make certain that, that they don't do that. Because the ambiguity, <laughs> I call it body snatching, the, the ambiguity of it is present with our children just as much as abortion. You need to change the question when, when and if that dialogue comes up. We're not asking the right question. You need to ask the question, okay, what is it, what's missing from your sense of self-worth and your identity that you want to kill it? What, what's, that needs to be the question. Not, oh, you're feeling anxious, oh, it's because of this. You know, it's not in that age range in particular. They're just a mess. They are. I mean, I have one girl that I considered it a complete success that she sat during a counseling session because usually she's like all over the place, climbing around. I bring the dog. She's on top of the dog. You know, I mean, it's just she's now progressing into why I have the ability to manage my own behavior and manage my own thoughts. And so that's a, a real success um, in that way when you see that. But it really is what I call a systemic boundary cross when somebody's trying to not just go, oh, you're Catholic, oh, you're Muslim, you're this, whatever. Okay, I'm not going to stop talking to you until you acquiesce to what I think. And as Christians and in Catholics as in particular, we don't, we don't do that. We just show, talk's cheap. You want to behave like a decent human being. That's more powerful than anything else. So just to keep that in mind, if anybody has a problem with that, there is no evidence. So a lot, of the, a lot of people that are in that place, too, you, you always want to be looking at the motive. Not in a scary way, not like we're mistrusting, you know, but just use your head. So um, an individual boundary is different, but similar tactics are used if somebody wants to manipulate someone into blurring the boundary and adopt what they call a codependent type of relationship, which involves that external locus of control where you're looking to someone else to decide who you are, what you are, whether you're good enough, whether you're worthy. worthy. And so one of my first internships was in anger management. And I always thought that was curious because they were putting the least experienced counselors in with the most difficult cases. Now, of course, I preferred working with the victims over the perpetrators, but I learned how, how to deal with that as well. So perpetrators follow that same formula. It's a cycle of violence. They first isolate you, and then they begin to introduce something that is contrary to what you know about yourself, irrespective of, of being religious, just that you're a good person. You lose, lose sight of that, and that boundary goes fluid, and then you, can't, you have trouble bringing it back. So I was going to tell you about one of the, the worst things that I did, kind of like what Father Len was talking about today. Sometimes something that looks like the worst can turn out to be the best thing. Um, so after a perpetrator does that and begins to impose those, those tactics and get the person, try to manipulate them to get them where they're under their thumb, if, if, you, if you don't do anything for that person, they can literally be told two plus two is five and they'll think it's true because they have nothing else around them to, to prove to the contrary. They just think that's true. So when people say, oh my gosh, that girl's so smart, what? She got in a relationship with them, you know, like, well, she might have been smart academically or intellectually, but she hasn't quite managed her sense of self-worth. So this lady came um, in, and by some miracle, prior to my meeting her, she had escaped to go to a church. 
she figured out, you know, he was gone. She, she'd go to church. Well, while she was there and she had to sneak to go to church, she described that she was able to reconnect with that feeling of Christ within her. And eventually she found the courage to leave this person. That perpetrator reacted by tracking her down and throwing acid in her face. By the time I met her, the healing issue was going to be a little difficult because now every morning she had to look at that disfigurement. Every morning she had to be reminded that this had happened. So by all intents and purposes, you think, oh, that's rough. <laughs> that person's whole life's going to be in that place. But instead, she was describing how some of the people that were supporting her, and my fingers in air quotes here, um, were telling her, well, you just need to find God, you know, in him and, and pray for him and all those somewhat unhelpful kind of things. And they, you know, a lot of proselytizing and spewing a bunch of platitudes that, you know, that really were not feeling supportive to her. So when she came in to see me, I took the position of trying to help her see Jesus generally. Just where can you see Jesus? And in this situation, I was able to help her see that she was more likely to see where Jesus was in her. You're not going to see it in that person or the situation. Particularly if someone is full-on sociopathic, uh, they don't feel pain. They don't feel pain. They, they'll, they don't appreciate your remorse. Like I said earlier, if you're hitching your wagons to that person being remorseful for your healing to begin, it, it's unlikely. And that's just kind of the way it is. And unlike Father Flanagan, I do think there is such a thing as a bad boy, as I've seen some of it. Um, but it's, it's also what happened in this particular situation that was so wonderful, is that there was nothing I was going to say. What are you going to say to that, right? Some barbaric person did this to you. Okay, so now the, the only thing you have is a choice to decide how you're going to react and respond to that same situation. So what I provided for her is like a Christ-centered holding the space while she processed it. So it's very, very powerful when you can do that. Um, Father Len over the weekend talked about this woman who was in the hospital who had all these things happen, and he just couldn't believe how joyful she was because she was very secure, very secure in her faith and looking, how can this change me? What can I do differently? How might I take this experience and turn it into something different? That, that's not really in counseling what you can do. You have to literally hold the space so she feels safe within the confines of that place to process that information. And eventually she was just like that. It was amazing that she could just look to God and just be so happy. She decided, I'm happy I lived, and now I have a chance to do something. And prior to that, she didn't. That was the whole thing. She didn't know her purpose. And that's what confirmation is about, is finding our purpose. So first we got to look, though, and recognize that forfeiting a boundary, or the too fluid of a boundary, you know, where you met somebody five minutes ago and just spent your last 500 bucks on some random gift. You know, those are the kinds of things that happen. Rigid boundaries, too, are where people slam down the, the, the contact with other people because they were wounded somehow. And so they just, no, I'm just, I'm not... I'm not doing humans anymore. I can't handle that, right? Well, neither one of those are, are good, but what I said a few sessions ago comes from the perspective that if you're trusting, 
well, a couple of sessions ago, I said, trust in yourself more than God. Well, now, if you're putting your trust in all these people outside of you instead of God, it's going to be a rough go. You're going to feel like one of those, like, you know, raggedy ants. They'll be pounding you all over the place. You won't know what's what and what's going on. So when it comes to others, you have to trust God more than these others. Now, it's not to say there aren't people who are experts out there or do things like that, but one of the things that's happened in this country is people who were once trusted individuals now are proving that they're not. And that's a tough place to be sometimes. I mean, when you, you've put your, you know, all your eggs in that one basket and you're looking for that person. And I'm not saying, you know, swing the pendulum the other way and just don't trust anybody. I'm just saying, just approach it from the position of, okay, how am I supposed to be bringing myself closer to God by interacting with this person? That's what you have to look for. And it's not always in the other person. It's got to be in you because remember, that's the only thing you can control is your behavior, your thought. That's the only thing you have. So don't let that go. Uh, and to understand that identity is a child of God, you have to remember that. When most people here, right, were baptized in infancy, I mean, they say the words, I claim you for Christ. That's what takes place in that experience. So now you're in. And that's where all of us are supposed to be supporting and helping other people find that. And they do it in a way that is less verbiage and more demonstration. You know, if you behave in a way that people, it looks like you're happy, they're going to want to have that too. And that's where we have to be, even in the face of difficulty. Because that's part of the thing. As I, I worked with folks who had substance use issues and where other people who have kind of nefarious motivations are going to agitate and confuse. Sometimes the substance abuse issues, I agitate around six weeks in because I want to see whether or not what we've done is taken hold. I want to see if there's any traction to it. Because, you know, I mean, I could go to a fat farm and easily lose 30 pounds because I'm locked up, you know. I mean, the hard part is when you have to go back out in the world and interact in such a way that, that you're showing this is who I am. So do, does anybody remember confirmation and any discussion about charisms or developing your talents and gifts? I mean, most of, I, I know for sure, I was like in fifth grade, which was a little silly. Um, but so the difference between those in the, in the catechism, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, there's a difference between that and charisms. Does anybody know what the difference is between developing your talents and gifts and then an actual charism? Anyone? I'm going to the line this morning. One person? No. Um, well, there's a definition that they put in place, but it, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we are given to keep and gifts we're given to give away, right? So that's the primary difference. Those seven gifts and the fruits are given to us to keep. That's our personal like transformation. And they're part of that, that internal sense of being Christ-like. Charisms, on the other hand, are given to us to give away. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the kind of the, the, um, the climax of that interaction, is that you're giving it away. But you first have to identify it. And sometimes, um, well, every time, the charism is supposed to benefit somebody else. Just basically think of it that way. So sometimes people will talk about they had a conversion experience. Have you ever heard that? I mean, people say that that's happened to them, and it may have happened 
to you in different ways. Obviously, you're sitting here on the weekday listening to this, so there must be something there. But sometimes it doesn't happen quickly or abruptly or in a pivotal way. Other times it's over time. You begin to go, oh, yeah, hey, oh, I'm good at this or something. But especially when it comes to a charism. So one of the things for me that happened was pretty abrupt, pretty, like you could easily identify when that took place. And I was very fortunate that I was pretty young. But it was kind of like what Father Lem was talking about this morning. Sometimes the thing that turned out to be really good was felt like the worst thing that could ever happen to you in your life. So I was um, working in, with juvenile court, and I went out to a house on a routine, routine field visit. There was no reason to expect anything was going to be different. And I walked up to the door, and as it turns out, this young man had not been, he had a terrible thing happen, um, and he was not getting counseling as I had recommended for the court. He was still going through the court procedure. And so here he was with a handgun to his head, and I'm standing there at 26 years old with no connection to anybody trying to figure out what to do, right? So I, to this day, can't tell you what I said. I can't tell you how I was able to disarm him from that. But the awkward, weird thing afterwards was that then I had to take him into custody for his own protection, which is not typical. That's not usually what happens. But so I kept telling him all the way there, you know, you've done nothing wrong. You, you just need some help. You just need somebody to help you figure this all out because what had happened to him was pretty significant. So um, he was fine. <laughs> I was not uh, because it was a very, very stressful thing for me. I, it, was, it, it took a while to, to debrief from it. And, and then, of course, like I said before, with the negative emotions can actually be positive because it can galvanize you into doing something that you may not have done. You may have let your fear overtake you, right? So I discovered, long story short, that, um, that the judge who was supposed to be enforcing this order was friends with this kid's dad. And it was something that wasn't necessarily a secret, but um, nobody was kind of going, oh, well, you know, there were all these terms he was supposed to do. So I was so mad. After I wrote the, I did write the report appropriately. I did do that. Uh, but then we had a handwritten thing where you could do, you know, communicate with one another in your department. So I wrote a memo to the court hearing officer telling her what, that I, you cannot let this kid leave this facility without a counselor. You know, I didn't say, you're stressing me out. You know, I just said it like that. Even then, I was still appropriate. Well, I go home, go to bed, midnight, I'm done, right? I'm, next morning, I come in, or afternoon, I came into work, and my director was fuming. He was ripping me. What are you doing bringing that kid in here? Why'd you bring him here? And I'm sitting here like, what? You know, I mean, I'm looking at him like, what, what do you mean, why did I bring him here? And, and he said, why didn't you just walk away? And I said, because he had a gun to his head? He would have hurt himself. He goes, well, you could have been killed. And I thought, oh, yeah. You know, you're young. Oh, really? Wow. Um, yeah. um, but then he said, this isn't your problem. You just made this a problem for us. And I'm still standing there mystified at this person. Like, how, what, what? And so um, he said, uh, you know, like, well, that's not the protocol. That's not what you're supposed to do. And I was trying to not be insubordinate, but I just said, oh, Monday morning quarterback. You know, like, you weren't out there. You weren't the one, you know, faced with this situation. And so he was really angry. But he turned out 
he, he said, you know, you don't deserve to have this assignment because you're obviously not, I can't remember what he said, something about like I wasn't loyal. I was like, oh, okay, if Irish Catholics are anything, they're loyal, <laughs> you know. And anyway, um, he said, well, I want to know what you would do, how are you going to correct this behavior? And I said in my 26-year-old self, if I had to do it all over again, I was doing it exactly the same. He goes, well, then you're fired. I'm like, didn't think that one through, did I? Um, <clears throat> so um, I walk out, like, Okay, well, I was looking for a job when I found this one, so you know I'm trying to figure out what to. So I go stop. Is Marilyn here? I stop at San Roque Church. Marilyn and I shared that church in Santa Barbara, um, and I just sat in there. Just I didn't know what to do, and I was blessed, I think, to to have thought to go to the church first instead of stressing myself out or whatever. And after two hours, I wasn't getting a huge loud signal about what I was supposed to be doing here. So I go home, and at that time I was living in this little guest house by myself. I was totally self-sufficient. I didn't have anybody helping me, so I was going to have no money very quickly. And it turned out that while I was in church, there was all this God influence going on. A whole bunch of people found out about it and thought it was horrible and came to my defense, including the judge. And so the judge, when he inadvertently saw this memo that the when the court hearing officer wasn't there and they sent the memo down and he ended up getting a copy of it, um, he disqualified himself from that case. And, he, it, was, and it was a pretty high-profile pro case, too. But then he called the chief and told the chief that that was unacceptable. And not that he necessarily had control over her, but definitely influence over her. And then went to the director who really was mad at me now <laughs> because now there are people coming to my aid, you know. And so it turned out that at that moment, I realized that's my charism. I know how to lock in, almost like those lasers where you just lock in and just communicate that without even saying anything. You're communicating that love for that person and for Christ just from that position. And it's something that, as a counselor, it's been very useful to me. But a lot of counselors don't have that. They don't have that sense of, of just connecting and, and being able to positively influence just from that position. So, like, if somebody's not Catholic, it doesn't matter. Because it's like saying, um, do you have to have permission to pray for someone? No. But from the perspective that I'm in, it also doesn't matter if I get um, any kind of engagement from the other person. I'm just going to continue to send that message out there. And that's what you want to be looking at, is trying to discern your spiritual gifts in addition to whatever talents and gifts you have. So the next phase I'm going to ask about is grief. And I know this is a little bit difficult, but um, why do you think I waited till now to introduce the concept of grief and grief management, and I didn't do it in the emotional regulation section. Anybody got any ideas? Okay, I'll give you a hint. Third scrutiny, okay? <clears throat> Third scrutiny. So people face challenges with the... Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you may have heard of, um, identified five stages of grief. And sometimes when I've had uh, somebody who's had a you know, a person close to them pass away. That's a pretty tangible way of processing through grief. Other people, they are grieving the loss of 
um, you know, a, a city they once enjoyed. The city has changed, so now they have to grieve that kind of loss. But bigger than that, I believe that we spend our life going through these stages. So even though it might intensify when a person or a pet or um, you know, something really important to you is gone, but I believe what we're doing from baptism is dying to self. You have to kind of weirdly develop personally. It's almost like you're passing through that self to understand things, just like when Christ had to come to us because we couldn't get it. <laughs> it was too much. So it appears as, as a human and divine. And so that's what I think happens is that we spend our lives dying to self because as we are born, as we all know, you're aging. Your body's breaking down too, but we're hoping that the exchange takes place where you are very rooted and reconnected to Christ rather than people, places, or things. A lot of people, I think, uh, I think Father Len actually mentioned this once too, but I, I had a guy who was a multimillionaire and it just wasn't doing it for him. He had put so much of his identity into the amount of money that he made. He realized it was just going to be empty and, and lonely. So I gave you an exercise, a grief exercise that you could do later. It can be kind of, kind of personal, um, where you write a letter to that which you think is no longer what you thought it was, and then try to look at it from the perspective of the five stages of grief. Because we're dying to self, but we're also defining and enhancing our purpose. So we also develop our talents and gifts, and we do those things, though, according to God's will. I mean, do you know how many athletes I've had come in who think it's completely over, their life is done, because they didn't make the NBA? And I can give them the stats and tell them that how unreasonable it is, but that's not what they need. What they need is to figure out that there are going to be multiple roles where you express who you are and your talents and gifts. But you cannot be contingent, have that contingent on things around you or outside of you because that can change. And that's a very precarious place to be. You don't want to be in that, in that place. So when you set the boundaries, like you first discover that charism to serving others, that's what helps make straight the path, is when you figure that out for yourself. So I put a couple scripture verses in there as we're moving into discussion about confirmation. Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good character. And when you look back at the definition of confirmation, we're reconnecting and really focusing in on our Catholic brothers and sisters. So you want to make certain you're paying attention to the people you're hanging around with because you can inadvertently become and adopt those people's um, values that are different from your own. So then there's uh, the first Corinthians 1 chapter 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Well, <clears throat> what I think that means is we need to share that mission, not what we like for dinner, you know, just share that mission and not agree with every single thing everyone says. That, that's not going to be always helpful either. And then the last one is, there is one body, one spirit, just as one hope in the goal of your calling by God. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, 
through all and within all. On each one of us, God's favor has been bestowed in whatever way Christ allotted it. And I have to add, in, in Christ's old, own time, too. You know, like, um, some people pray like they're ordering off the menu. You know, like, oh, oh, you know, I didn't get that. There must be something wrong. I'm going to leave the church. No, that's not how it works. It works on God's time. And if you've run into obstacles, and it seems like persistent ob- obstacles, that requires a deeper dive into you. What's going on with you? Because people will say, like, especially relationships, you have young people come in a relationship and, and they don't feel like they can leave the relationship because they're clinging onto it to tell them who they are. And that is not the direction that you want to be going. You want the person to notice for themselves as they evaluate their talents and gifts and assess for that, that they can do something but it has to always go back to our shared purpose. Anything you do has to go back to that. So um, goal setting is what I use mostly, which I think can be really helpful, because it's a way to like, for our inability sometimes to access that level of intimacy with Christ, we have to have some tangible things that we can do. But then you have to choose, and that's what this, you know, writing this out each week is about you have to choose and deliberately send your mind there all the time. You know, because we also didn't get a choice of when we die. You know, we could walk outside and something happen. And are you right? Every decision you make, is it something that's bringing you closer? If it's not, then you're going to have to get a little better at being deliberate in your personal conversion and then very, very vigilant in promoting that collective walk in faith. Because I looked up, and I've been saying this forever, but finally I got someone to back me up. Um, no, is that we are right now in a battle to defend our faith. But we have to be together when we're doing it. Because when the people kind of like look down sometimes on, on different religions, and like Father said earlier, you know, this is a symbol. Why do you guys worship this? Because we're not worshiping it. It's, it's a symbol. But we also don't think that our good works are going to get us to heaven. We don't earn our way to heaven, but it is going to reflect our faith. Anything we do should reflect our faith and keeps us in alignment with God's will. Because eventually we're going to have to answer for it, right? Not thinking about that right now, like me not thinking about listening to John. (laughs) I want to think that one through because you're going to have to explain. If Jesus was here right now, and did an evaluation, like my father said earlier, that the scripture of looking at your sins, you're going to have to answer for it. So usually when people have difficulty with boundary setting, it's because the one person is looking to control, and the other person weirdly needs to be controlled. That's how you get into that kind of codependent relationship. But if we're supporting each other, with the same faith goals, with the same mission. I was thinking about it the other day. It's, it's honestly like spiritual kryptonite. <laughs> you know, you can get together and there's so much power in that and staying together and unifying and not like as eunuchs or clones or anything, but just finding each one of us our different way that we can best express our faith and what can we do because everybody has a gift. Everybody does. And just because they can't find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You're going to have to seek out somebody to help you to do that. And I can tell you this too, anybody in the military is going to tell you 
that if somebody isn't in alignment with you, it's also important for you to try to understand them. Because in battle, they try to understand the enemy, and they're trying to figure out how they can be like Job and not let it do anything to them. They just proceed on and stay, you know, keep your eyes on the finish line where it's supposed to be. And it does require, to know and love our Lord, it does require doing this. You have to understand the people that don't agree with you, but doesn't mean you acquiesce to the way they do it. You're just trying to understand. Many times when people have these unusual ideas and they'll look at me because I'm just listening and they'll say, what, 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 what do you, what do you think? I'm, like, I'm just listening because I want them to see, repeat it back. Is this something that's helpful to you? Is that, is that going to work for you? Like Dr. Phil, how's that working? You know, well, most of the time it's not working, but you don't know how to adjust it. So just get somebody. I mean, if the plumbing breaks, you don't have no problem calling a plumber. So ask somebody, but you need to start also by recognizing that hurt people hurt people. That's what they do. And they don't oftentimes do it blatantly or really obviously, because they know enough about in any kind of polite society, maybe that's not good. But I would have to tell people when they were doing those things, okay, I can explain your behavior. You can learn about yourself, which is the only way you're going to be able to manage your behavior. But I can do that, but it's not an excuse. Because I would have people tell me, like we were talking about jokingly, you know, with confession where everybody wants to lay out everything first before they get into the sin because then they can justify what they did at the end. You know, what's that second part there? Because rationalization is, is something that's really, um, that you do for two reasons. One, when you know you've done something that's somewhat shameful, but also that you, somebody you thought was trustworthy isn't. And that's something that becomes very, very difficult for people. They, they have a hard time recognizing, you have to recognize the sin and the motivation so that the sin doesn't corrupt you. So about, um, I guess it was over a couple, a couple of years ago, there was a guy running for attorney general. And I'd been doing a presentation at a um, naturopath's office, so I was a little bit late. So I didn't get in there for all the, you know, he had like a question answer thing. <laughs> so... My question was, are you corruptible? And of course, my husband's going, you know, like, what are you doing, this guy? He's not the grand poobah. I can ask this question. Um, and the reason you ask that is because if someone has dirt on you or whatever, and you've not repented, that can still haunt you. You can still fear that somebody's going to find that out about you. You know, well, it's important for you to understand that other person too because if their motivation is not the same with yours, it's going to be reflective of bad boundaries, but they're all, they're all underpinned by either a desire to inflict pain for control or the boundary for the recipient on some of these you know, people imposing um, horrible things on them is their fear of pain of being disliked or unaccepted somehow. Because people, again, in anger management things would say, oh my gosh, you know, that, that woman is so smart. What's she doing in there with that guy? Well, obviously, she only knew one part of her life that she could master and hadn't looked at the rest. So she was putting too much into that. And there's a, a concept called fawning. Has anyone heard of it? It's where um, it's, it's not necessarily like grooming for bad behavior, but that's different for like sex offenses. But 
Responding is where you said or did something and you got this very negative reaction. And so you feel shame about that reaction for, or, or with what you said, even though there was no malintention. But another person that you maybe didn't understand very well received what you had to say differently than you intended it. Remember, that's what communication is all about is your intention and then the expectation. So like sometimes people will ask you for something and they expect it back and you're either not in a position to give it or you don't. So those are the kinds of things where you have to evaluate a little closer because in that fawning, people will get hurt and then come back harder trying to engage that person. You know, like the mean girls in school, you know, where they're like, they'll go out and you know, embarrass you or shame you or, or say something really you didn't say was that weird, but then they make it weird and all these crazy interactions that go on. And then you'll come back like harder. And, and people around you are like, what are you doing? This person is not good for you. What are you doing? It's because something somewhere happened where they felt they were not liked. And everybody wants to be liked. But I got news for you. Christ is the only one who likes you <laughs> unconditionally. Because even all the dumb things you do, I mean, although I will say with parents, you, your love for your children never goes away, even if they make some decisions that wouldn't be what you would think. But that's also part of the learning process. So when we're now moving into the section of um, how do we go out back out into the world and speak our faith somewhat, or at least live it, you're going to have to do it together. You're going to have to seek people out and build that support. But what people do when they're having difficulty managing something is they isolate. Because out of embarrassment, out of whatever, how did this happen? Oh my goodness, what did I do wrong? No, you don't look at that. You say, okay, how can Christ change me? And then maybe something else will change. Just like when I was praying for two hours, having no idea that Christ was still working, even though I didn't feel it at that moment, you know, that you got to keep on that, that mindset. So when we look now today at the, I, I call them architects of evil, the people that have gone out to try to push hardest against the Catholic Church. They, these folks have also infiltrated the legal system, the healthcare system, the education system. But to get the church is something that for 2,000 years we've been battling, right? But it's just, like I said a couple of weeks ago, it's just ramped up a little bit. So when you have something happen that comes into your life, like a news story, a person says something, whatever, and it doesn't ring true to you. In fact, it seems odd. Wait, wait, Dr. So-and-so has now identified himself as God? Hmm, okay, that, I'm not, I don't think so. Um, when you get in that place, you're trying to ascertain what's true. Okay, and I, I use a little T with that. But it has to be in from the perspective of the truth. Don't get confused. But some of the people that are trying to get you to engage in behaviors you know are anti-Catholic, anti they, they are working you. They're trying to work you. Not everybody is, but you have to figure that out. And that's the part that's difficult. When somebody presents something to you and it doesn't seem right, don't just immediately say, oh, okay, I, I, I believe you then. No, you have to figure out whether or not that is coming from a perspective of good or is there a motivation that's selfish or something that's going to be trying to get you to um, you know, acquiesce and, and come over to their thing. Because we talked about that before. When somebody does something bad... They want everybody else in there with them. 
and they do something. So now, just as an example, there's 703 powerful people who are unashamedly proclaiming that they know better than God. They don't even hide it anymore. They're just saying it, right? And so they think they should be making all the world's decisions. So my challenge to you is you need to unite because these 700 could conceivably manipulate 2.4 billion if they're not paying attention and uniting and reinforcing that. That's what you want. And and out of those 2.4 billion, 1.2 are Catholic. So even though you'll hear some news things, well, you know, oh, you know, Christianity is countercultural now. It's just outdated, passe. You're not going to fit in. You're not going to fit in if you don't adjust to this. They're normalizing anti-Christian behaviors. And, and we're talking about just being mean, not even anything like controlling your food source or any of those things. Just the, the behavior now is every man for himself. And that's the opposite of what we're doing in our church. So don't get confused by this because we have the numbers but sadly, they got the microphone. So we're going to have to figure out a way, and that's part of the challenge of finding out how can God change me so I can have an impact and share that word instead of trying to figure out how you're going to change a bunch of sociopathic evil people. Well, I can tell you that's not going to happen, but you've got to shut them down where you can. Find where you can. There's a lot of things we can't, right? We don't get invited to Switzerland. Um, But those are things that you have to do. Don't allow that opportunity for someone and then be ready to defend it. And not necessarily as a full-on, you know, Desiderius Erasmus uh, apologist from the 1500s, but more of just what are you going to say if somebody confronts you about something? What do you say? Why do you believe what you believe? You know, and a lot of people would, older Catholics would have said, oh, because the church told me to. Okay, that's true. But in a lot of instances, you have to believe it yourself. If you don't believe it, it's not, it's not going to be very helpful to you. So there are wolves in sheep's clothing. I said that to a, a teenage girl, and she had never heard that before. And I was like, okay, that's not one of those old person's references. You should know this, you know. Um, and so, you know, because the devil is wily like that, right? The, the devil doesn't come in and say, I'm going to take your money and your you know, your identity and all that stuff, it, it's presented as, as a sheep, right? So anytime that that happens, anybody's like challenging you on your faith, that's your first clue that this person is not up and up. They're, they're somebody who are like corrupted somehow, whether it's from the shame of sin. Because again, I'm not excusing people's behaviors, but when you can understand it, you have a better chance at doing something about it. So right now, if you, if you listen to Luke 21:36, he said, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Honestly, every interaction you have, if Jesus was there, what would you say? What would you say when you, when you did something? Well, they were going to take my job, so I, I had to back down. And, and that's something that, you know, everybody will have that experience at some time. But then for me, too, which is happening in, in the world as well, at that time, this guy was my director. This was the guy who was the leader. He could try to compel me to do something because in telling me 
that I should have walked away and let some poor young kid take his own life, um, he's challenging my faith. And I was absolutely fearless. I mean, of course, my, my dad said it was dumb. But um, <laughs> I, no, I was fearless. Uh, but so that's where y- you want to recognize that the more, even though this has been devastating to a lot of Catholics and Christians to think that, that believe some of this garbage, they think, oh no, maybe we were wrong. And I, last week I talked about Pascal's wager. If the worst thing happens is you behave like a decent human being and you get eternal life, might you want to stay on that? Maybe kind of defend it? But you don't have to defend it in such a way that you're trying to get the other person convert it. They will ultimately do it eventually when they watch you because talk's cheap. They want to see how you behave. Are you a happy person? Do you always go out of your way for people in a way that's healthy? Um, so that's something you have to recognize. So right now in order to, to it, it is our quest for love of, of ourselves, others, and Christ that we have to find that purpose through the sacrament of confirmation. We, especially people here who are showing up every week, you're waymakers. You're the ones that are going to be helping people, and that's where we got to go because you, you can't have any fear about this. We don't have the luxury <laughs> of, of, like, going to sleep. We don't have that. You're going to have to fight for it, not because there are suddenly fewer of us and they, people believe that, but because it's something that, that we were expected to do. When we entered into baptism, we are expected to do that. So um, <clears throat> for your last uh, challenge, I want you to look at your, your plan that keeps getting, adding something each week. Perform some sort of random act of kindness. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be like some huge monetary thing. It can be smiling at some kid with purple hair. It can be, um, you know, making a, a gesture like um, grabbing the door for somebody, things like that. But think about it each morning and then act it out somewhere around the middle of the day if you can. And then at night, write it down. Why do we write it down? Because it starts to change the whole, it'll change you, believe me. It'll start to change you if you write it down. Because if you're helping others and you're frustrated or feeling like some things are not going real well in leadership, pretty much everywhere, um, it's a way that you can feel like you're doing something. Because you're, you're not able to, I mean, I don't want to run for office, um, but you know, you're not able to do some of those things, but what can you do? Some kind gesture. You know, you, you go visit somebody in assisted living or something like that, and you just sit and listen. Those are the things that you can do. So that is your call to action. And I'm just going to close with Romans 8:38 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks for your attendance. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. 
Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.